Before we begin today's episode, I would like to introduce you to a great country gospel singer who recorded this in Nashville, Tennessee this last month. The song is You Can Never Steal a Bible by New Zealand singer-songwriter John McCabe. Take a listen. You can never steal a Bible For it's written by the Lord As a message to His children Straight and solid like a sword Let it guide you through the darkness Let no pages go unturned Now you can never steal a Bible you just carry on the words Now there's a sign that points to Nashville And I can almost smell the rain It's a lonesome walk from Memphis And I'm hitching home again That little country chapel Seemed my beacon in the night as the thunder crashed around me I was drawn into the light Where my hand fell on a Bible And without a second thought I had placed it in my pocket Never dreaming I'd get caught Then a hand fell on my shoulder And I bowed my head in shame that Bible back to him That old preacher smiled and said You can never steal a Bible For it's written by the Lord As a message to his children Straight and solid like a sword Let it guide you through the darkness Let no pages go unturned now you can never steal a Bible You just carry on the words If you enjoyed this sample, you can purchase the single online or wherever great music is sold. Just search You Can Never Steal a Bible by John McCabe. Now, let's begin episode 12 of season 3 of Unsolved Mysteries of the World. Bennington, Vermont was a quiet, comfortable place to live without much incident or crime. Robberies, vandalism, murders, and even petty crime were almost non-existent. Disappearances, however, mysterious disappearances, were more common. Each year, between 1945 and 1950, someone had vanished under mysterious circumstances. Victims ranged from an 8-year-old boy to a 74-year-old hunter. In 1947, however, the most famous disappearance occurred, sparking the formation of the Vermont State Police. The disappearance would haunt the small town forever. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 3, Episode 12, The Disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon and the Bennington Triangle. Paula Jean Weldon was a sophomore at Bennington College, studying art, and there was nothing out of the ordinary about her. She studied hard and worked at the college cafeteria and got good grades. She wanted to switch her studies to botany, 
but also wanted to continue with art. On December 1st, 1946, she told her roommate, Elizabeth Johnson, that she was through with studying and wanted to take a long walk. She suggested the long walk would be on Vermont's Long Trail near the college. The trail ran for more than 270 miles and cut through forests and woods to the north of Bennington until it reached the Canadian border. Dressed in a red parka coat with a fur-lined hood, blue jeans, topsider shoes with thick soles, and a gold Elgin wristwatch with a black band, she made no indication she planned on staying gone for very long. Given that it was cold, though a snowless day, and the temperatures were predicted to be sub-freezing by nightfall, she seemed either underdressed for a walk in the woods or was only planning to be out for a short while. The idea of a long walk without preparation is one of the many mysteries surrounding this disappearance. Shortly after she was last seen by Elizabeth, a blonde, slight, red coat-clad young woman was seen by Danny Fagger, the owner of a gas station that at the time was across the street from the college gates. Fagger said the girl ran up the side of a gravel pit near the college entrance, then ran down it again. Then she went out of view. He couldn't figure out what she was doing or why she was running up and down. Just before 3 p.m., Lewis Knapp, picked up a girl hitchhiking on Route 67A just outside the college entrance. His description of her matched Paula Jean Weldon. When climbing into his truck, the girl nearly slipped and Napped warned her, be careful. No further words were spoken between them until Knapp let her off near his driveway, which was on Route 9 near the Long Trail, where the girl had told him she wanted to go. After thanking Knapp for the ride, Weldon headed for the trail. Knapp found it odd that the girl was unusually quiet. The next sighting of Paula was roughly 45 minutes later in Bickford Hollow, where several residences reported seeing her headed to the trail. One was Ernie Whitman, a watchman for the Banner, who warned her about heading up into the mountains dressed so lightly and at such a late hour. She continued on anyway, into the woods and out of sight, forever. She was carrying no money with her and she even left behind an uncashed check from her parents. No one saw Paula Jean Weldon again. When she hadn't returned by the time her roommate went to bed, the roommate thought Paula was pulling a late night of studying at the college library, but the roommate became concerned the next morning when it was clear that a roommate had never returned from her walk. Her bed was undisturbed. The roommate contacted college officials who organized a small search party to look for Paula Jean somewhere within the campus grounds. The college had a system where students had to sign out if they were going to be off campus late in the evening, but Paula's name was not on the sign out list. College president Lewis Webster Jones phoned Paula's parents to ask if she had gone home for the weekend. Mrs. Weldon collapsed with worry. Her father, W. Archibald Weldon, immediately left the family home in Stamford, Connecticut. Weldon's father arrived in Bennington and immediately organized a large group of volunteers from all corners of the community, including local residents and members of both Bennington College and Williams College. Classes at Bennington were suspended so that all students could participate in the search. 
By the evening of December 2nd, however, the college students had reportedly become frustrated with what they saw as an incompetent search, and they shared their criticism with Weldon's father and President Jones. Weldon, an engineer who was well known in his home state, used his influence to call in state police from New York and Connecticut. At the time, Vermont did not have its own state police force, and the search for Paula Weldon was unfortunately disorganized and lacking in resources. Vermont did have a state investigator by the name of Elmo Franzoni, and within days of Paula's disappearance, he was put on the case. He, along with representatives from the New York and the Connecticut Police Departments, took over the search. Those who had been volunteering to comb the Glansbury wilderness for Paula switched their efforts to raising money for a reward. Collectively, they raised $5,000. Their efforts would be to no avail. As the days went by, there was still no trace of Paula. There were a number of tantalizing and unquestionably strange leads that kept investigators looking, such as the claim by a waitress in Fall River that she had served dinner to an agitated young woman at a table who matched Paula's description. This lead struck her father as so promising that he disappeared for 36 hours in order to follow it, without telling anyone of his whereabouts until he returned to Bennington. This led some to point to Weldon as the prime suspect in his daughter's disappearance, a theory made even more compelling by the facts surrounding the week before Paula's disappearance. Apparently, Paula was expected to go home to Connecticut for Thanksgiving, but she called her parents and told them that she would be staying in Bennington. Apparently, according to her friend Elizabeth Johnson, she and her father had a falling out not long before her disappearance. She later retracted her original statement that Paula was not distraught and added that yes, indeed, she had been quite depressed. Many speculated that Paula's depression was centered around a faraway boyfriend, and her father at one point set out a theory that his daughter had a boy from her hometown who wanted to call on her, and could have been a suspect. Mr. Weldon could never provide any evidence to substantiate this claim, however, though he claimed that a clairvoyant had offered up this tip. On December 16th, Paula's father packed up his daughter's belongings and returned to Connecticut, but not before lambasting Vermont for its lack of a professional police force. He deplored the alleged irresponsibility of those heading up the search, especially the fact that there had been no records kept of the first 10 days of the investigation. This was not overlooked by the small army of reporters from across New England who had descended on Bennington to cover the story, and the negative press the state received in the weeks following Paula's disappearance helped lead to the creation of the Vermont State Police in a legislative session in July of 1947. Local volunteers, meanwhile, still searched the stretch of trail to see if they could find Paula. But by January, the weather prohibited even the shortest of searches. In 1955, a lumberjack who had been in Bickford Hollow near the long trail where Paula had disappeared said he had followed a girl fitting Paula's description into the woods. More importantly, he told a friend that he knew where Paula's body was buried. After interest in Paula's case had been revived and the man had been extensively questioned by then village attorney Reuben Levin, the man admitted 
that he'd been joking and had no knowledge of Paula or her whereabouts. The case remained unsolved and was nearly declared cold until, 13 years later, an unidentified skeleton was found in Adams. Investigators excitedly awaited the results of an analysis of the bones, only to find that they were too old to have been possibly Paula's. After the Adam skeleton, no significant leads were ever uncovered, leading people to formulate their own theories as to what became of the girl. Speculations have been widely varied, from the more practical, like she ran off with a boyfriend, she died of exposure in the wilderness, to the paranormal. The most intriguing of these theories, in the latter category, is one that is raised by New England author and occult researcher Joseph Citro. He coined the term the Bennington Triangle to describe an area of southwestern Vermont within which five people disappeared between 1945 and 1950, including Paula. He links these disappearances to a special energy that inhabits the Glastonbury Wilderness area that attracts UFOs, and these crafts are responsible for the missing people, he says. On November 12, 1945, 74-year-old Mitty Rivers disappeared while hunting. Rivers was guiding a group of four hunters up the mountains, and on the way back, Rivers got ahead of the group and was never seen again. An extensive search was conducted, but the only evidence discovered was a single rifle cartridge that was found in a stream. The speculation was that Rivers had leaned over and the cartridge had dropped out of his pocket into the river. The disappearance had occurred in the Long Trail Road area in Vermont Route 9. Rivers was an experienced hunter and fisherman and was familiar with the local area. Witnesses said he would never have gotten lost. Witnesses said they had seen strange lights in the skies that day. James Tedford, a veteran, also vanished. He went missing on December 1st, 1949, exactly three years to the day after Paula Weldon had disappeared. Tedford was a resident of the Bennington Soldiers' Home, and he had been in St. Albans visiting relatives and was returning home on the local bus when he vanished. According to witnesses, Tedford got on the bus and was still on the bus at the last stop before arriving in Bennington. Somewhere between the last stop and Bennington, Tedford vanished. His belongings were still in the luggage rack and an open bus timetable was on his vacant seat. On October 12, 1950, eight-year-old Paul Jeffson accompanied his mother while she was doing chores. She left her son unattended in her truck while she fed pigs and other animals. When she returned, her son was nowhere in sight. Search parties were formed to look for the child. Nothing was ever found, though Jeffson was wearing a bright red jacket that should have made him more visible. Bloodhounds tracked the boy to a local highway where, four years earlier, Paula Weldon had disappeared on the trail. And just 16 days later, Frida Langer vanished. On October 28, 1950, Frida, aged 53, and her cousin Herbert Elsner left their family campsite near the Somerset Reservoir to go on a hike. During the hike, Langer slipped and fell into a stream, 
She told Elsner if he would wait, she would go back to the campsite, change clothes, and catch up to him. When she did not return, Elsner made his way back to the campsite and discovered Langer had not returned, and that nobody had seen her since they had left together. Over the next two weeks, five searches were conducted involving aircraft, helicopters, and up to 300 searchers. No trace of her was found during any of the searches. On May 12, 1951, her body was found near Somerset Reservoir, in an area that had been extensively searched seven months previously. No cause of death could be determined because of the condition of her remains. The coat, however, on her decomposed body was strangely intact. Its bright red color shined as if new. In fact, all the disappeared in the Bennington Triangle have one thing in common. They all wore bright red coats, highly visible bright red coats. Have you ever tried to find a cheap hotel room and you open up Expedia, then you open up Trivago, then Booking.com, and then Hotels.com, and so on and so on, trying to find the best deal from all the hotel discount and booking sites? What if I told you you could do one search in one window, either online or using your mobile device? What if I told you that you can take all these discount search sites, combine them into one easy-to-use app, saving time and money? It basically finds the cheapest price anywhere. There are no additional fees, including taxes, and the app is free to use. What you see on the screen is the exact amount you will pay. Now, this isn't a separate booking app. It is a comprehensive yet easy way to do hotel searches. Think of it as a cheap hotel search engine. It simply finds the best deal for you. Savings are incredible, sometimes up to 70% off. There are even options such as pay now, pay later, free cancellations, no credit cards required. With a database of over 270,000 hotels, 46,000 hostels, 500,000 bed and breakfasts, and 1.3 million apartments, you will be sure to find the best hotel at an incredible price. Now, do you want this app? Find the best hotel room at the best price. Just visit www.experiencethis360.com. At the top links, you will see a link called Best Travel Deals. Click that or use the drop-down menu to get to a specific area. Links will also be made available in the show notes. Again, that's www.experiencethis360.com. Now back to the podcast. Since the beginning of the 19th century, there had been numerous sightings of a creature in the Glastonbury Mountain area near where all the disappearances had occurred, which has become known as the Bennington Monster. The eyewitness reports describe the creature as looking like a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. According to the Bigfoot Field Research Organization, there had been a number of Bigfoot sightings in Vermont over the years. The first reported sighting of the Bennington monster took place early in the 19th century. A stagecoach full of passengers was traveling near the Glastonbury area when the driver was forced to stop due to a washed out road. This is when the driver noticed a large footprint in the mud, which didn't appear to be human. And that's when a creature attacked the coach and knocked it over with several blows. 
The passengers saw a pair of eyes staring at them from the dark and then heard something roar and rush off into the darkness. One of the most recent sightings took place in September of 2003. Ray Dufresne of Winooski, Vermont, was driving by Glastonbury Mountain when he saw a large black thing by the road. It was well over six feet tall and was, quote, hairy from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. There were several other sightings reported around this time as well. In 2011, filmmaker Matt Garland visited the sites and filmed and produced a mini documentary about the Bennington Triangle. We will include links to the two-part film on our Facebook page. Others who don't believe in the Bennington Triangle point to something perhaps even more disturbing. They claim that the disappearances are the result of the work of a serial killer. They point to two previous cases. The first is Catherine Hull. She was last seen in Lebanon Springs, New York, about 40 miles from Bennington. Hull, a 22-year-old stenographer, had arrived to spend the summer of 1936 with her grandmother in Lebanon Springs, and while stretching her legs with a walk shortly after arriving, she vanished. She took no extra money or belongings and planned to return in time for an early dinner with her family. She was last seen getting into a car with a man and a woman. Two other motorists came forward to say they had given her a ride that day, confirming that Hull was hitchhiking in the Lebanon Springs area and suggesting that she perhaps planned to take a day trip to downtown Albany. In December of 1943, two hunters came across a skeleton while deer hunting in the woods surrounding Hancock. Dental records confirmed that the bones belonged to Catherine Hull, but due to advanced decomposition, no cause of death could be determined. Police eventually wrote Hull's death off as having likely resulted from a case of amnesia and exposure, and thusly closed the case. Curiously, when Hull's body was found, her red coat was removed, and her skull had been placed at eye level in a nearby tree. This was later explained when another local man, Francis Van Slick, confessed that he had found the body earlier in the season while deer hunting and had placed the skull in the tree so he could retrieve it on his way back. However, he claims that he got sidetracked and couldn't find the location again. It's unknown whether he offered any reason for not contacting authorities immediately upon his return to civilization, and his story raises a ton of red flags. The extent of the police's investigation of Van Slick's background remains uncertain. Police and coroner records for Catherine's case have been lost, having fallen victim to one of the many periodic bureaucratic purgings over the years, and chances of a resolution are very slim. In 1952, 10-year-old Connie Smith disappeared from Lakeville Summer Camp, reportedly 70 miles away from where Paula Weldon vanished. Still smarting from a tumble she had took the day before and nursing a bloody nose stemming from some particularly rough horseplay with her bunkmates, 10-year-old Connie Smith stayed behind in her tent before going for breakfast, telling those who'd cared to ask that she was going to stop by the infirmary to return an ice pack before joining the others. Instead, however, Connie dressed in a red windbreaker, blue shorts, and tied a ribbon in her brown hair, 
before walking away from camp and toward Indian Mountain Road, where she had been seen by the camp caretaker, who mistook her for a counselor. According to a later sightings report by a motorist, Connie headed north on Indian Mountain Road, stopping at a private residence to ask for directions to Lakeville Town Center. The witness, Alice Walsh, would tell investigators that the girl had tears in her eyes. However, Walsh, much like the caretaker at the camp, thought Connie was older than she was and, thinking she could fend for herself, sent her on her way rather than intervene. After stopping once more for directions, Connie was last seen hitchhiking in Lakeville Center. Around 8.45 a.m., she got into a vehicle on Route 44 near Beljo Road. This would be the last confirmed sighting of Connie Smith. In April of 1953, nearly a year after Connie's disappearance, a traveling jewelry salesman walked into an Ohio police station with an unbelievable story. He knew where Connie Smith was, because he had been there when she died, and had avenged her himself. The man, Frederick Pope, alleged that he and his partner Jack Walker, traveling with a Rhode Island woman named Wilma Sames, picked Connie up on Route 44, promising her a ride to Wyoming. This was no big deal, he said, even though the car they drove was hot, the two picked up hitchhikers all the time. Pope claimed that his companion killed Connie in Arizona, and that Pope himself later beat him to death with a tire iron. Upon closer scrutiny, however, Pope's story fell apart. There was no Wilma Sames in Rhode Island, and no record of anyone named Jack Walker ever existing. Pope eventually admitted the whole thing was a hoax. Interestingly enough, the discredited Pope story did lead somewhere. On Halloween of 1958, a set of bones was discovered on Skinner Ridge, just south of the Grand Canyon near Flagstaff, Arizona. The story of Little Miss X, as the Arizona Jane Doe was known, reached investigators in the Smith case in 1962. Dentists compared the remains to Connie's dental records and initially found compelling similarities. Unfortunately, a positive identification could not be made and the identity of Little Miss X remains unknown to this day. Frederick Pope would not be the only suspect in the Smith disappearance, nor the only one to confess to her presumed murder. In 1957, a man named George Davies would be arrested and sentenced to death for the brutal killings of Jetain Bouvin, who was lured by a personal ad, and Brenda Doucette, who was picked up hitchhiking in Connecticut. Both girls were strangled and sexually assaulted in addition to being stabbed dozens of times. While awaiting his execution, Davies decided to clear his conscience and confess to several additional murders, including that of Connie Smith, who he claimed to have killed and buried on the bank of a river. Davies led police in a search of the area, but no remains were ever found, and 30 minutes before his execution, Davies admitted to having made the whole thing up as a ploy to avoid the death penalty in the Bovin and Doucette murders. With George Davies' execution and the evaporation of the Frederick Pope Little Miss X leads, the disappearance of Connie Smith went cold. Over the decades, hundreds of sightings trickled in. 
a photograph of a beachgoer in the Bronx was circulated due to its subject's resemblance to the missing camper, only to later be identified and dismissed. A woman came forward in 1988, believing she might actually be Connie Smith, but DNA said otherwise. A series of disappearances in Tolan County, a decade and a half later, spurred fears of a serial killer preying on young girls in Connecticut. But if police in those jurisdictions made the connection of, to the earlier disappearances of Connie Smith, it was never publicized. There are some that speculate that the serial killer or killers stalks their victims based on the color of their clothing. We may never know what really happened to all the people who have gone missing from the Long Trail and the Bennington Triangle. But one thing is certain. Do not wear red anywhere near it. Thank you for listening to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory, and subscribe, rate, and review. We would really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook to enhance this episode with photos, illustrations, and lively discussion. Look for our suggested links, and do share this podcast with others. Perhaps you or someone you know will have a solution to this mystery. This podcast is created by Cold Rasta Studios and includes music and sound effects by John Savoy, Albert Ray, Gerardo Garcia Jr., Rana Szilard, Madia Cupelli, Alex Lisi, Martin Kahlberg, and Adrian von Ziegler.